Welcome to Movie Maniacs, discussing the greatest movies of all time and all the new films in theaters and streaming that you need to know about. Like us, rate us, share us. Good evening, everybody. My name is Chuck Curry, alongside my co-host, Kenny B. This is Movie Maniacs, our weekly radio pod- podcast, also heard on WOWO at a Fort Wayne, Indiana, every Saturday night. At midnight, this is a show where we talk about the world of movies and television, anything pertaining to uh, the film industry and pop culture in general. And I got to tell you, there's a lot to talk about. This is one of the most interesting weekends movies have had, I think, in quite some time. Ken, believe it or not, the combination of of, uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer... Uh, manifested itself into the biggest opening weekend in 15 years. Now, post-COVID, it almost felt like uh, it, it almost felt like if the stock market was crashing and then the buyers came in to buy and basically popped the market through the roof. I mean, it was actually an incredible weekend. A lot of positive energy in terms of social media, and I don't say that very often, but the combination of Barbie and Oppenheimer and a lot of love behind for whatever reason, getting these movies to do very well, and they did, uh, I think is a good thing. So without further ado, I'll get your thoughts. How you doing, Kenny B? I'm doing well. I just bought my Barbieheimer doll. It comes with a personal nuclear device. I think it's great. Yeah, it's. Uh, but uh, I'll tell you, on the on the flip side, because I always say, out inside every or outside every silver lining is a cloud. Uh, in the litigation going on in Delaware. Uh, regarding AMC and their attempt to recapitalize, uh, they are painting a very bleak picture. Now, some of it is they want to get this recapitalization approved, so they're going to be bleak. But, you know, they're suggesting that uh, they're facing bankruptcy if they don't get to refinance and raise some capital. So, yeah, we had a great weekend, and uh, the movie chains are going to be reporting their earnings in the next week or so. But chances are... They are going to be very slim. In fact, AMC still could be in a lost position. So what we need is probably 52 of these weekends. And, uh, you know, what what's coming after Barbie and Oppenheimer? I, I guess you can do a sequel to Barbie. It'd be hard to do a, a sequel to Oppenheimer. But I'm thrilled, yeah, to see, I'm thrilled to see Oppenheimer do well because ever since Ple- uh, Peaky Blinders, Cillian Murphy is just... I just, uh, you know, I really respect that guy as an actor, and he is very good in everything he's done. So it was great to see him in a, uh, you know, a, a very big mainstream movie. And, uh, and and it appears he's gotten the role of his career. You know, if you look back, uh, Cillian Murphy goes back to uh, those, those really well done uh, uh, end of the world sort of zombie movies, 28 Days and 28 Days Later. He was a scarecrow in Chris Nolan's Batman Begins, and he did a movie with Wes Craven, in, uh, which co-star Rachel McAdams called uh, Red Eye, which is a really nifty B-thriller that uh, is very effective for the fans who have not seen that movie. I highly recommend it. Uh, it's actually a lot of fun. He gives a really good performance, a uh, very on-edge type of a screen presence, but certainly got the role of his career with uh, this Oppenheimer movie. Yeah, and people, dis- you know, people discover him with this if you haven't watched it. 
go back and watch the series uh, Peaky Blinders. I can't put the word that goes in between Peaky and Blinder whenever they say it, but uh, he just um, he just played a, a great role in that as well. You know, the um, the ultimate uh, criminal and then also a member of parliament. Wait, well, being criminal and being in politics, maybe those go hand in hand. I don't know. I did not buy a Hunter Biden painting this week, however. Okay, very good. And let me just just go over this and wrap my brain around the 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 the, the, the totalitarian, uh, uh, amazing, really just a bizarre weekend on the upside. You got Bobby came comes in number one, right? It does a hundred and blows past expectations. Uh, leading up to its opening on Thursday night, winds up doing $162 million. The original tracking was like 90. So for whatever reason, this movie is is one of those rare films that has become a phenomenon. It doesn't happen very often. Why this movie? I watched it, I liked it. I thought it was a very, uh, very hip, very edgy script. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, adult type humor in this movie that's going to go over the head of kids still kids are gonna i think like it visually the movie looks uh great on screen the production design is outstanding margaret robbie uh she's a beautiful actress and she's a terrific actress ryan gosling is very funny in this movie what i don't want to see is a bunch of barbie sequels to me this should be a one and done uh it is definitely a feminist movie it has a lot of messages about female empowerment which i think is awesome uh there's some good dialogue in this movie of course you start getting some of the backlash and you know some of the more right based audience you know yells it's woke so on and so forth Uh, i'm glad this movie's doing well uh theaters needed it I think the industry needed it. Now, if somebody told me, uh, and I give Bobby an 8 out of 10, I, I think it's a very solid watch. I, I didn't get a chance to see uh, Oppenheimer as we as we speak today. I will this weekend. But if somebody told me, Ken, that a three-hour drama uh, that, that, that was directed by Chris Nolan, who's a terrific director, but if they told me it would make $81 million in his first three days, I would say that would basically be... Uh, an impossible feat. Like every star would have to align for that to do it. I mean, uh, the tracking initially was like at 45 million and it doubled its tracking. That doesn't happen very often. It was just a stars align one of those weekends where social media actually did something positive. It was a lot of positive energy on social media getting behind these two films. And it just shows you the power if, if the if the culture stayed in a positive mind frame and got behind uh, a lot more product and, 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 and pumped up the pop culture aspects of some of this stuff, uh, theaters would be, and the movie industry would be in a lot better shape than it is now. Yeah, and the stars aligning is very real because uh, last weekend in most of the country, it was either extremely wet or extremely yeah. hot or extremely True. both which is always good in the summer for movie attendance. And I'm, I'm actually far more impressed because I actually thought Barbie, I mean, we first talked about it a long time ago, I thought it was going to do well only because it was going to attract children and it was going to ta- attract adult liberals who don't like Jason Aldean's uh, song uh, in a small town. Um, so if we're going to talk about young people getting woke and you know, not liking things and all that stuff. But Oppenheimer, I mean, how it 
developed the groundswell is like totally beyond me because not only is it a drama it's a historical drama and yeah but what they did like you said like that your reference joke in the beginning of the show is they wrapped around the two movies together uh and then basically got behind both as one sort of like an in joke or catchphrase but whatever they did from a marketing point of view uh it was like a rocket ship that was running on full cylinders straight up yeah and i'm sure that the producers of Oppenheimer never expected it, and it's great to see no. those. Great to see those things happen because for every Oppenheimer and Barbie, we've got a Babylon. Yeah, we, we certainly do. I'm going to talk a bit more about what was this summer, what's coming forward this summer. But uh, our main topic at the end of this program, we always do a top ten list. We could probably do a top thousand list, but we want to just have some fun. What off the top of our head, our ten moments that stick in our mind that we really just like we remember generationally through our childhood until now 10 favorite movies uh scenes that we like i i could have did a thousand and narrowed it down to basically 10 right off the top of my head that just popped out of my head that should be fun in the second half of this show i did the uh, same thing i i the only thing i researched but you know, normally yeah. I do a research on this stuff, and if you research top movie scenes, what you get are the most, the most uh, re- rewound scenes, yeah, and those agree. those are things like uh, Phoebe Cates coming out of the water in uh, Fast Times and things like that. Uh, but right. I only looked; I, I had to look up Joe Van Fleet's name, and that was the only thing I actually had to look up for this. So I was proud of Very myself. Good. Should be fun. Uh, number three, grossing film this week: Sound of Freedom. Uh, another 20 million to its take. The film's done 120, almost 130 million dollars as we speak. That is a tremendous number. It has that pay it forward campaign, which is a anomaly, anomaly, uh, something very unusual. I've not seen that before where people are buying other people tickets. Now, whether they actually go to see the movie, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people have seen this movie and they told me I have not seen it as yet, but I do want to see it. It's going to start to open uh, worldwide. Uh, this weekend. It's going to be interesting to see how it uh, performs, but it is very profitable. Uh, it's well-reviewed, and it's a very one of the more interesting stories, to say the least, at the movies in 2023. Here's another interesting one, Ken, before we bounce into something else. Mission Impossible 7, which got, has gotten terrific reviews, 96% positive on Rotten Tomatoes. I saw the film. I thought it was very entertaining, great action sequences, state-of-the-art, actually, but it dropped 65% week to week, basically uh, going into the twister that was Bobby Oppenheimer. Uh, talk about a perfect storm of you don't want to be there. Uh, it's sort of bizarre. And Mission Impossible 7, I do think, now stands at $361 million worldwide. Probably needs $700 million to break even. Here's the problem for Paramount. I don't know if it's a problem, but this is just a reality. Uh, it's Dead Reckoning Part 1, which means there's a carryover to next year where there will be a Part 2. Um, that has put them, I think, a little bit in a weird position. Probably would have been better if uh, it was just titled something completely different and not, one, not Part 1 and 2, considering it appears that the film is underperforming at the box office. Now, it's going to be interesting. This will be the weekend to tell worldwide what kind of legs this film has. If it doesn't have legs that they need this weekend, uh, 
it might have a hard time recouping its financial investment. Not that we should really care about that. that does not affect the quality of what you're seeing. As I stated many times on the show, I think The Flash is as good and as entertaining as any movie released this year. If you just want to be entertained, uh, there was stat- stats released this week. The Flash, which pretty much crashed and burned theatrically, both here domestically and abroad. Number one film on all pay-per-view uh, uh, channels uh, this this week. So hopefully Warner Brothers is going to recoup some of its money to rent it. That would be $19.99 to buy it, $24.99. I bought it. I've been watching it at my uh, ice cream parlor, Ken, The Flash, probably three times a day. People come in, they see it, they, they actually, they dig it. So why people are watching it and spending $19.99 and $24.99 to watch it in the comfort of their, home, their own home and didn't go to a movie theater? Again, that's another story I find somewhat perplexing, but uh, I guess that's the day and age we live in in 2023. Now, going back, if you look at this summer as a whole, you, you well, what I think Bobby has done, Ken, here, and Oppenheimer, is it is a, uh, it is basically a massive statement, I think, by the general public saying, give us something more than the superhero and the male-driven testosterone movie. Because if you look at, just in this country, Fast and Furious 10, Transformers, uh, this new one, Rise of the Beast, The Flash, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, the underperformance of Mission Impossible 7. You're seeing a lot of these male testosterone big action movies rejected by moviegoers. And Bobby and Oppenheimer completely embraced. I think it sends a message to the studio to now wake up real quick and when the writers come back, start producing some screenplays that are very different than these movies that have been rejected this summer. And if they do that, I think they'll get the industry back into line where, where it needs to be. But a lot of mess, a lot of financial distress, to say the least, of what has happened uh, th- th- this summer. Yeah, I, th- I think what this weekend also shows is just the the size of the adult, and I don't mean adult movies in the terms of the uh, of triple X. I mean adult in terms of they're not superheroes, they're not, um, right. Mattel dolls. Sophisticated. sophisticated. The, the sophisticated. And I, I yeah. think you see both the the size of it and the limitations of it. That It's it's big enough to really give a jolt to one movie. But I, I do, and I think you were alluding to it, I do think Oppenheimer probably cannibalized Mission Impossible a little bit this week. And now it'll, no be, it'll be, it's going to be fun actually going forward to see where all three of them end up. Because I can see Oppenheimer having better legs than Barbie. Only because Barbie is the kind that a lot of people are going to say after a couple of weeks, okay, we're waiting for we're waiting for it to start streaming it because our, our daughters want to watch it again. Yeah, I mean it's going to be interesting. And then, and then now this weekend in theaters, you got Disney's Haunted Mansion, which is based on a popular theme ride. Uh, reviews are somewhat some good, some mixed. Uh, I think it's going to have an audience that's tracking around a $30 million opening weekend. Again, you're going to the buzzsaw of, of Bobby, which is going to probably suck a lot of that audience away. Then you got next week, which is going to be interesting. You got the newest uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is an animated version produced by Seth Rogen. He also has, he voices one of the characters in this movie. It has the same sort of animated look 
as Spider-Man across this, the, the Spider-Verse, which has performed phenomenally at the box office. Good news on that front. Reviews are really positive. Uh, it was screened. Reviews uh, were released last night, 96% positive. And the reason I state that, Ken, is because unfortunately or fortunately, you know, fortunately for the moviegoer, you want to see good products, so you want to see good reviews. But for the studios, if you don't get those good reviews, it has gotten much harder to launch a movie because there's so much, so many in the media that are just gunning for these movies to fail. And once you get uh, mixed to weak reviews, it's almost like they're throwing uh, dirt on the casket as quick as possible so that's good news for the teenage mutant ninja turtle movie also opening next week is meg 2 uh which shows jason strahan in the giant prehistoric shark movie sequel which is um, bombastic uh the first one did very well uh theatrically i don't feel a lot of buzz on on this one but uh i i guess we'll see some distressing news a possibility warner brothers is some uh, some banter being out that Warner Brothers might delay some of their bigger projects from now until the end of the year because of the writers uh, and, and actors strike uh, do probably due to promotion. One would be Dune 2, uh, then you have uh, a remake of The Color Purple, and then you have Aquaman 2, which comes out, I think, Christmas Day. If studios start taking their product, which is scheduled to be released this year, and kick it into 2024, uh, that's going to be very bad news for theater owners, Ken. Yeah, and I think one of the things is studios like the the optics and the publicity of opening night, and actors are not attending the opening. So if you can't have a great opening for your movie, part of the thought is probably let's delay it. And that Color Purple, of course, is not actually a remake. It is actually the musical version of Color oh, okay. Purple, which you. is based upon... The, uh, right, okay. the the movie and I I've seen them both and I actually the the musical is very uh, very good and very true to the uh, color purple score so I hope people uh, will uh, will actually embrace that one I also I, I gotta say it before I forget um, it's now again Kevin Spacey undefeated in court I'm, I'm gonna keep banging that drum because in this world we're innocent until proven guilty and basically the uh, I think the the judges, um, attitude towards the latest case, uh, Spacey case was, who the heck is bringing all this stuff? It's nothing. It's nothing but hearsay and innuendo, and there's no proof. So I was very happy to see Kevin Spacey acquitted once again. Now here's the thing. I, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the studio, and, and, and this is a an interesting discussion here. I agree with you. Uh, if you know you're innocent to proven guilty, and he has been not proven uh, or charged and convicted of a crime okay that's that's now fact so here's the thing will kevin spacey work going forward the answer to that question is probably not in hollywood in this hollywood studio system he's probably going to get work outside outside the boundaries uh in, in probably overseas more smaller independent work one executive said, is Kevin Spacey going to, they asked him, is Kevin Spacey going to work? He said, uh, yeah, maybe outside the lines, but he's not going to be uh, in, in a Marvel movie uh, anytime soon. And that's probably a correct assessment. Unfortunately, I think in Kevin Spacey's case, one of the things that is has hurt him dramatically is his reputation of not being a great guy. 
and uh, he's been difficult on sets. Uh, he's been a, he's an abrasive personality by many accounts. Having said that, I hate to see people completely buried for their their career in life, uh, especially now that he was you know found uh, innocent of his charges. In, uh, in in the UK, but do I think he's going to prosper going forward? Uh, probably not. Uh, do I think it'll work? It'll work to some extent, but uh, I guess that'll be interesting to see how that uh, pl- plays out. What's gonna, if, you look yeah. at the, if you look at the actors in the Me Too movement, look at James Franco. His career is not really recovered. Yeah, I, mean, I think what's going to happen with Spacey is that a small, yeah. uh, an independent studio, and I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think of any uh, scripts that I've read with the little studio. I'm associated with that, that he fit for he's going to end up doing a yep. a movie for a studio for a million bucks far below what you would normally pay him he's gonna he's gonna have a performance that's going to take off and is going to be successful and all it takes in hollywood is one successful movie for people to forget your past so but that's here's the problem but uh, and but here's the problem with that the problem is if you're spending, if you're a studio, and now with the with social media being so vocal and and at times vicious, you're spending 150 million dollars to produce a movie, and you say, okay, we have a part, we can fit Kevin Spacey in, he's a terrific actor, and then you get the vicious backlash against him on social media, that could bury the movie. So it's a very treacherous road. Uh, going down the gate. Here's the question: Will will he get that opportunity? I don't know. You don't know. It's a possibility. Uh, I, does time here all wounds? In this case, I say fifty fifty. But we'll, we'll, I guess we'll see how this materializes. Yep. Anything else to add to that? I got nothing else to add to that. Okay. Now, uh, some movie news of interest, or 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 just news in general. Uh, Universal released its coming attraction trailer to uh, its new Exorcist movie, Exorcist, um, it's, it's called Exorcist Believer. Uh, it's directed by David Gordon Green, who now controls the rights. The Universal paid a ton of money for three Exorcist, uh, what they call basically sequels. What they're doing is it's sequelizing the original film, bringing back Ellen Burstyn, who I think is 90 years old, in a pivotal role. I watched the trailer, I thought it was very interesting. It's not one little girl who gets possessed, it's two. Uh, that's an interesting take. Listen, I still think, Ken, and from my mind, The Exorcist, which was released in 1973, uh, is the greatest horror movie ever produced because it doesn't feel like a horror movie. It is beyond frightening, especially if you grew up with a religious background. I, I grew up Catholic, I had all the uh, the dogma, and this movie, to, to, to this day, spooks the heck out of me. I've done a couple big screen revivals of it and uh it's an incredible watch but even in 2023 i watched a movie on pins and needles and and nothing plays in my head more than the exorcist uh gordon green i i think for the most part uh mixed mixed results with the halloween uh movies that he rebooted at universal let's see what he could do with that with this uh i'd rather see it in different hands but it was an intriguing trailer and exorcist believer will hit theaters this october the first of a a trilogy so there'll be two more installments coming out one in 2024 one in 2025 and maybe maybe the uh, little girl one of the little girls who gets possessed 
will channel her inner Flip Wilson and say, hey, the devil made me do it. Uh, well, you just, just, <laughs> uh, I haven't thought of Flip Wilson in a long time. That brings back a pretty good memory. Well, there's one really good line in the trailer, though. When Ellen Burson looks at the girl who's possessed, she says, who's talking in her mind, talking to the devil, she says, we've met before, <laughs> which I thought was a really... Uh, Really, really cool. Yeah, and we met before, and guess what? You didn't pay your you didn't pay your exorcist, so this kid was repossessed. That's what happens, you know. I'm, <laughs> I wonder if Campbell Soup's gonna have a tie in with this, but uh, who knows? With pea may, soup may and all pea that. Soup. Pea soup. Yep. Here's an interesting uh, streaming story. Remember the TV show Suits, which ended its run on the USA Network four years ago? As I think I told you recently, I've just started watching it, and I, uh, right. yes, I, so I do remember it very well. My my memory's not that bad. No, so, okay, so you, you jog my memory. I remember you speaking about that. So Netflix, Netflix acquired the rights, and it's now streaming on Netflix. So Suits has now become the highest viewed show in the history of Netflix. Three, I think it's three point one billion uh, minutes watch. I hate that. I, I hate the way they do Nielsen. Three point one billion watch. I just like to know how many people watch a complete episode. So four years after it's run, comes on Netflix. People are intrigued and they're watching. They're watching the show. So here's the question: Now that we have a writer strike and an actor strike, what are these actors making, if anything? of the show being so successful four years after it's run on the USA now on Netflix. Yeah, and we, we've got that's a forefront in, in their in their in their uh, strike negotiations. Yeah, we we've got no idea because we don't really know what the kind of residuals any of them got from from streaming. But the other thing it shows is is that um, most people in this world had no idea who Meghan Markle was before she married the prince. No, because most people did not watch suits in its original run so it's no. it's, it's amazing how somebody can uh, after the fact really you know all this stuff because she's you can't turn on television and not see something where they're upset or you know they they were upset right. because they weren't able to take air force one to the queen's funeral and stuff yeah. like that and uh, it's it really is amazing and i love watching it because you know in real life megan markle seems like a self-absorbed type of person and she plays a self-absorbed kind of person in the show so she's actually good on that show yeah but she didn't have to act she's herself the best Maybe. person the best person on the show is the personal assistant for the uh, the lead lawyer the redhead because she's just she has some of the best lines of anybody yeah i mean i i, I didn't see every episode of that show but from what i watched uh i i, I thought it was a very enjoyable uh entertaining watch before we get on into our main topic of our 10 um, movies that we love uh, certain scenes in those 10 films uh, we're going to do some this week in movie history this week in movie history death wish uh, starring charles bronson hit theaters back in 1974 certainly touched a nerve with people who lived in uh, new york city bronson played the character paul kersey there were four sequels three being probably the most bombastic one of my favorite b-movies of all time but uh death wish very effective exploitation well done exploitation thriller which hit a nerve back in the year 1974 ken yeah i, I love movies where we end up rooting for the criminal uh that happens a lot yeah, it's interesting you bring
because you know in, in film I, I think I don't think there's much of a divide between uh, left and right when when it comes to rooting for the main character uh, in real life there, there certainly is but you know when you see a movie like Dirty Harry very few people sit in the theater and go boy you know Dirty Harry's breaking the law I don't like him uh, it's sort of like 99.9% are all on board rooting for that character and listen everybody rooted for the character Paul Kersey well played uh, by the iconic Charles Bronson back in the day also this week in uh, movie history July 27 1979 the Amityville horror hit theaters James Brolin Margaret Kidder reviews were not great but I gotta tell you this movie's effective I like it it has a big fan base I remember I'll tell you a quick story Ken when I was a kid my father always used to bring home the daily news and I remember on a Sunday he brought home the daily news and it was a big expose in the middle section the truth was before the movie came out, right before the movie came out, about the story of the Amityville Horror. And I remember reading it, being fascinated by that story. And, you know, obviously a lot of the stuff in this film was embellished. But uh, I think of, I think to this day, a very good movie. Oh, I, I think so. And, you know, again, not my kind of movie because I get scared easily. But, yes, a very good movie. And I'm afraid uh, of the dark. So, they, you know, these don't work for me. Now, uh, also, th- this day in, in movie history, this is an interesting one. Uh, this week in movie history, Turner and Hooch is released back in 1989, starring Tom Hanks and a dog. Now, it was released by Touchstone Pictures, which was churning out like two movies a week back in that period. That's a subsidiary of Disney. Uh, this movie is very watchable. Uh, Tom Hanks is always good in everything, but this was a turning point for Tom Hanks. Uh, because after this, he sort of realized he had to take his career in a different direction. It was it was three years later, he gets a role uh, as a baseball manager in the League of Their Own. He gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor. And that really turned his career around into an amazing run with Forrest Gump in Philadelphia. Uh, why they kill a dog in Turner and Hooch, or Turner and Hooch to this day, I have no idea. Uh, and I'm going to ask you a trivia question. What was the counter dog movie uh, with a with a known actor uh, in that time period that 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 was also popular? Do you know the a- answer to that question? No. It was K9 with Jim Belushi. Oh, okay. Uh, that was released right in the same time period. In that one, the dog lives. So th- that actually is <laughs> a good thing. Uh, I-, I don't know. I just I still have a hard time watching Turner Hooch, watching Dog Pass at the end of the, the film. I believe he gets shot, which to me in the Disney-based movie uh, is, is pretty uh, off the wall. Unless you're going to see Old Yeller, I guess. But, you know, that's... To me, To me, Tom Hanks, the, the thing that made me a Tom Hanks fan and yeah. always will be a Tom Hanks fan was big. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you look at... You know, it's funny because he gave an interview not too long ago and he said, yeah, I made a couple movies that I, I liked. But, you know... You and we did. You know who who had the best career. He he was my number. He was my uh, number one. I mean, I, I don't think there's been an actor who's been more fortunate in many different ways than Tom Hanks has had in uh, in his career. And he's still, in, for all accounts, going uh, pretty strong. Couple birthdays of interest. Sandra Bullock this week turns fifty nine years old. Uh, pretty good career. I'll tell you a quick story. I, I probably spoke about this before on the air with Mike to the audience. Well, here's, the, here's why you got to be a little lucky in life 
in general. In 1993, Sylvester Stallone was getting ready, getting ready to film Demolition Man, and his co-star, a female lead, was going to be Lori Petty, who was excellent in the movie The League of Their Own, opposite Gina Davis. So they they start shooting, and they realize that Lori Petty and Sylvester Stallone did not have good screen chemistry. So the producers wind up. Uh, canning Lori Petty when they started the film and they bring in an actress and and her name is Sandra Bullock and Sandra Bullock winds up having terrific chemistry with Sylvester Stallone and you could see her ability to banter have really good and light humor quick line delivery and basically it was the beginning of A Star is Born and then Sandra Bullock uh, then gets the role in Speed a year later and that film originally had Halle Berry as a female lead. She winds up passing at the last minute. They bring in Sandra Bullock and then Sandra Bullock becomes a megastar off speed and can write her own ticket thereafter. And that worth is almost, according to uh, the internet, like $300 million. So Sandra Bullock's had a really good career. Happy birthday, she turns uh, 59. And we won an Oscar for The Blind Side. Uh, really good performance. Absolutely. And one other to, to talk about, uh, turning 101 years old uh, this week is Norman Lear, the creator of All in the Family, The Jeffersons, Good Time, Good Times, One Day at a Time, Facts of Life, uh, Maud. Maud. What an influential uh, producer, uh, a guy who liked Edge, a guy who liked people to laugh, had the Edge and the laugh combined very few minds like Norman Lear a true game changer Ken in the 1970s happy birthday Norman Lear yeah a person who changed television forever who brought brought up uh, in in sitcoms issues of rape and abortion and uh, things like that I mean absolutely he he was uh, he took a lot of risks and they they really paid off and here's the here's the interesting part about uh Norman Lear. I mean, could he do his thing in 2023? I say he couldn't. Uh, he, he, I mean, he could have a sitcom dealing with rape and uh, abortion, but he couldn't do All in the Family. Uh, he could probably do Maud because she's liberal. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I don't think we, I don't know if anybody right now, or this, if the world even is ready. Like one day at a, even a show like One Day at a Time with Bonnie Franklin, a show that I liked a lot, that show had some serious edge to to it, uh, and I, I don't often if, if the networks would would be so so you know open to doing the stuff that he did on that uh, did on 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 that show and all his shows. And obviously, we we speak so many times about on the family being maybe the greatest sitcom uh, of all time for for many uh, a diverse reason. Now, before we bounce into our main topic of uh, top scenes that we remember uh from from movies that we like i mean it could be a thousand but we went netted it to 10 uh anything else on your mind ken uh, uh because of time i'll save anything else for next week okay i'm gonna let you start uh okay. 10 through 6 okay and you know it's funny because as we were talking here i could have added the corn cob scene and the uh the piano scene from big i mean it's amazing and i did not you might have it in yours i don't have the horse's head scene, but I used that this week with our friend, the late comedian Do, uh, Johnny Watson. No, he's not dead. He's just always late because he came. Oh, he came down to the beach. I, I, I almost collapsed when you said that. <laughs> he came down to the beach to do some uh, 
do some shows and he didn't kiss the godfather's ring and i told him you're gonna have the other end of the horse in your bed my my number 10 i'm gonna go it's it's from blazing saddles a mel brooks perfect parody in this scene it's the scene where uh, they ask the the guys who are working on the railroad to sing a work song and of course Cleavon little starts singing uh, I get a kick out of you. And no, no, we want a, a work song. You know, like, swing low. Swing low, Cherry. Anybody know that one? No, no. And then they, the, the cowboys start singing uh, Camp Town Ladies. And, of course, then Taggart comes along, says, what in the wide, wide world of sports are you doing? But it was perfect because it was this juxtaposition of... a great scene. And it's taking, it's taking the sophisticated black guys and the really weird white guys it was just a great juxtaposition the next one because i was in key west once not actually i was in this was in palm beach i don't know why i said it's key west in my notes and i went into a uh, i think it was a cartier store and you know me i don't dress my i don't dress my wealth i wear uh, mcgregor sneakers that i used to get for 14.99 at kmart and i wear old clothes a lot and you know, people, this, the salespeople are looking at me in this Cartier store like, what's he doing here? Pretty woman, the, store, the scene where she comes back into the dress shop after she's gone out and bought some stuff, she's now looking quite fashionable and reminds the sales lady, I, you work on commission, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I really like that one because that's really giving it to the, to the, stuff, the stuff shirts. Number eight. Good one. It's... It has a great movie song playing in the background. Uh, Jennifer Warren's one of her big movie uh, theme hits from the uh, 80s. And it's when Richard Gere walks into the paper bag factory and uh, picks up uh, Paula. And they walk away into the sunset with Love Lift Us Up, Where We Belong, playing in the background. Great, great scene for those of us who like, you know, the romantic kind. Number seven. It's either in, it can be either in love affair or affair to remember because they're the same movie, and uh, it's it's after he sees her wheelchair, realizes she's the crippled woman who had uh, who had received his painting from the restaurant, and she tells him, you know, don't look at me so sad. I'm you know, I'll learn to walk again. If you can paint, I can walk. I thought that was a great, you know, in this very wonderful romantic scene, get a little dig in there. Uh, just a, a great ending for Love Affair or An Affair to Remember. In number six, no, it is not the deli scene from When Harry Met Sally. That'd be too easy. It's towards the end. It's what should have ended the movie. The interviews after this at the end of the movie ruin it. The movie should have stopped on New Year's Eve or actually a little bit after midnight on New Year's, it's when Harry comes and tells Sally, "When you, when you love somebody, you want to spend and you want to spend the rest of your life with them. You want it to start as soon as possible." And then goes into that question of life that we all struggle with: What does old anxiety mean? Should we forget people we've already forgotten and all that stuff? And uh, it's just, I, I just love that because I love a great romantic ending. If the movie had ended then, it would have been a much better movie. But still. I, I like that as my sixth favorite scene. All good picks. A lot, a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, my, here's my number, my number ten through six. My number ten 
uh, in Spartacus. I am Spartacus scene, uh, facing crucifixion, uh, having no way out. You know, his, his, his soldiers rally around him, each one saying, I am Spartacus, when called out, who is Spartacus? I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus. What a great scene. That really does leave a lump in your throat watching it. Stanley Kubik, uh, Kurt Douglas is a star, Tony Curtis co-star. What a great, awesome, emotionally powerful, uh, proud scene. So that's my number 10. Number nine, uh, I go back to Edward Scissorhands in, uh, in, in, in 1991, uh, the scene where Winona Ryder says to Edward, played by Johnny Depp, hold me. He says, I can't. And then she embraces him. He puts his hands and scissors around her. Uh, the Danny Elfman glaring score is playing, to me, an all-time favorite scene in one of my all-time favorite movies. So that's my number nine. Number eight, I went with uh, The Birds Attack for the first time in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, when all the main characters are in the diner uh, and, 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 and Tippi Hedren is in the phone booth. It's just an incredible scene. It's never explained. It's just fascinating, beautiful overhead shot. But The Birds Attacking for the first time in Alfred Hitchcock's 1963 classic, The Birds, is my number eight. My number seven would be from The Ten Commandments. And it's a subtle scene that has a lot of power for me. It's when Moses, uh, now uh, a Hebrew slave, is in the mud pits. And that old man who looks like he's 100 years old, uh, they throw a knife into him because he speaks out. And right before he dies, he looks at Moses and he says, before I leave this earth, I'm paraphrasing, these eyes will see a deliverer of my people. And I just think to me that scene always has massive power because it's foreshadowing what will happen in the life of Moses. It's a great scene and that's my number seven. And then in my number six would be at the end of Rocky in 1976 when Paulie, when, when the Bill Conti music is glaring and Rocky is, is crying out for Adrian after the fight and the judges are giving the decision which ultimately may become a split decision. Paulie holds open the ring ropes and Adrian runs under them into the ring embracing Rocky one of my all-time favorite favorite sequences. It's not a massive special effects scene. It's a very human scene, but it's beautiful. And that's my number six, Ken. You know, it's funny, the uh, scene from uh, Hitchcock's the, the Birds. I like the version of it in um, Mel Brooks' High Anxiety, where the birds attack basically by pooping on the person sitting there. But <laughs> a, a pigeon attack. But that's Mel Brooks for you. Uh, well, my top five now going to number five, I'm... I'm going to go old school from this point on. Uh, and uh, my, my fifth one is pretty obscure. It comes from John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Great song, too. And it's the scene because John Wayne keeps trying to tell Jimmy Stewart, get out of town, and you know doesn't really get, get involved. And then he sees Jimmy Stewart facing off with Lee Marvin in the street. And we know who's going to win that gunfight. And John Wayne turns to his uh, his sidekick and says, Pompey, my gun. And the rest, of course, is history. That Everybody thinks it was Jimmy Stewart who shot Liberty Valance, but it was John Wayne. And it was just uh, 
at that moment, he picked sides, and I always loved that scene. So number five is Pompey My Gun from The Man Who Shot, Liberty Valance. Good pick. Speaking of Jimmy Stewart, he's my number five, and it's from It's a Wonderful Life, and there's very few sequences that leave a lump in your throat and go have a person in a movie go, with, go into emotional overload. It's in when Stewart, who now is resurrected as himself at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, goes back into his house, and all his community is there uh, delivering money to pay off that loan, uh, the loan money that was lost from his Uncle Billy of $7,000. Uh, and it just keeps upping the ante. Uh, I mean, at that point, all he cares about is being alive, being with his wife and kids. But when his community gets behind him and shows goodwill uh, to the George Bailey character, it's really one of the most iconic sequences in the history of movies and perhaps the greatest feel-good moment in the history of motion pictures so that was my uh number five ken and i i could i love that scene and then also of course the little book from from clarence and clarence has gotten his wings so my number four i'm gonna go to the 1965 television movie of cinderella cinderella in the Lam- rogers and hammerstein version has only been done on television uh leslie ann warren of course played cinderella this is a scene that i probably saw 20 times with my kids as they were growing up because I love the Cinderella version with Leslie Ann Warren. I think it's actually the best, although the Julie Andrews one was pretty good as well, but the quality of the film you can get on that one isn't very good because it's from the early 50s. And it's a scene where Stuart Damon, you got to mention him every once in a while because everybody forgets who the prince was, um, comes and he's he's now going to try on the slipper on Cinderella this time. But she comes out and gives him a, 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 a thing of water. And he realizes, hey, wait, this is this girl I've talked to before. And the mother comes out yelling, Cinderella. And he just says to her, silence. And she gets this, Joe Van Fleet, by the way, played the mother. She gets this curled face, this this look on her mouth and everything like, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm doomed now. And my kids just loved that. That facial expression, and so I had to put that one on my list. Cinderella, Joe Van Fleet from 1965. Very good pick. My number four, I'll go with uh, a scene from the 1963 classic, The Great Escape, and it would be the scene where Steve McQueen uh, is on a motorcycle uh, in the last act, going up those hills in Switzerland uh, and being chased by Nazis, and he jumps the fence right before... He crashes into a barbed wire fence when they start shooting at him, and he's captured. And he raises his hands, and he's and 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 the German says "Andaho," meaning hands up. And he puts his hands up, and he gives that peace sign to the German officer. Uh, and he's now covered uh, in in oil. Uh, McQueen did a lot of that stunt mostly himself. There was a stunt man, I believe, who jumped the fence, but he did chase himself on film the way they edited it because nobody else could do a lot of that motorcycle stuff but a great scene iconic uh his character of hills jumps the fence uh chased by nazis in the great escape that's my number four to me he has the most iconic uh, motorcycle scene and car scene because uh, people have done things more spectacular but bullet i still love the chase scene in bullet great so. scene. Um, my number three I mean, it is the most known line of all movies ever. 
Some people who are misinformed suggest this was the greatest movie ever. It wasn't. But, of course, the scene is, Rat, where shall I, where will I go? What shall I do? And, of course, he just turns to her. And this is at a time when they weren't even sure they'd get it by the censors. And he says, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And that was, especially if you think of it, that would have been a shocking thing to hear in the movies back in the back in the 30s late 30s early 40s and it is of course the probably the best known line from a movie ever so i agree frankly dear i don't give a damn number three you know here's what's interesting about that scene and i agree it's, it's actually an amazing scene because very few movies especially at that length and that dower and i've always said about the ten commandments the relationship between uh brett and scarlet is one of the most complex uh relationships in the history of 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 cinema uh and it's also disturbing and that scene that last scene really does sum it up and it's incredibly memorable i can't imagine how people sat there in the theater back in 1939 and absorbed uh, and stewed that scene in their mind when they walked out of the theater. But it's, it's actually, yeah, it's actually the penultimate scene because the ultimate yeah. scene is her saying, "I'll go back to Tara," you know, and uh, tomorrow's another day. So at least, right. uh, at least she ended on an up note because she was anticipating right. the sequel that wouldn't come for like fifty years. But yep, uh, very very good scene. My number three, um, great scene here. It's in the shooters in 73. And, and I just, I find it unbelievably poignant. One of my all-time favorite scenes. John Wayne's character has cancer, knows he's going to pass, wants to pass on his own accord, leaving the uh, the the room and the house that he's staying for and that he knows in his mind for the last time. Goes into the kitchen, sees Laura McCall, and says, Goodbye. And she looks at him a little bit perplexed, but I think she understands what he's saying. And she says, goodbye, Mr. Books. And he goes off to meet his faith on his own account. And it's just a brilliant, poetic, beautiful, subtle scene. One of my all-time favorites. That scene's my number three, Ken, from The Shootist. Boy, do I love that movie. My number two changed slightly. And it's not, and this is from the greatest movie ever. And no, it's not the easy, here's looking at you, kid. But I had I had my scene picked, and then I watched an interview with Tom Hanks, where Hanks was talking about Bogart acting in this scene. And it's true. It, this scene was not in the script. It had no lines. Bogart was asked by the director to film this scene at the end of the day, just as... It's like, I, and, he, and Bogart said, okay, well, what's my direction? What's this, what's this going to be used for? Director says, I don't know. I'm going to use it somewhere. I don't know. I just want you to perform the scene with a total lack of emotion. I don't want you to think of any, any kind of motivation for it. And of course, the scene is the band leader. Well, first, Victor Laszlo goes up to the band, tells him to play the Marseillaise to drown out the Germans. And the band leader looks at, um, and Rick and Rick nods his head and it has, at that point has picked his side and they start playing the Marseillaise but when he filmed that scene he didn't know what he was nodding to 
And I'm gonna that scene all the way to the end of that group of scenes where Louie shuts down Rick's cafe because gambling's going on, just as the croupier brings him his winnings. So for me, from Casablanca, starting from Rick giving that nod, which led to that highly emotional Marseillaise scene, uh, that that is my number two scene. Very good scene. Uh, my number two, I went with, uh, I, I could watch this on an endless loop. That would be, you want to have a catch scene at the end of Field of Dreams back in 19. 19- 89 again here's the film uh in field of dreams based on that script before they started the shoot that could have went one way or the other you could have said boy this material is absurd and it'll never work or we're going to take a leap of faith and hope for the best and and think we have a home run and boy did they get a home run out of this movie what an emotional powerhouse uh in this scene it's just so powerfully emotional when costner says to the, the to the catcher who is his father uh, want to have a catch and you could see the way Kastner delivered that line with a line with a lump in his throat and the audience gets that same lump uh, it just you could watch a scene a thousand times and feel the same emotion which is pure uh, power so th- that's my number two Ken great another great scene my number one's from the greatest Christmas movie ever made and you know I'm I was Die Hard. Yes, Die Hard, yes, yes. Uh, you, you know, I, I love... Let me guess, it's, it's Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, I, I, I love, yes, I, I love romantic comedies. <laughs> I love chick flicks. I love sentimental. And in the movie Holiday Inn, early in the movie, he sings White Christmas to her, and she's, she sings along with him to sort of as her audition, and he's playing his pipe on the bells on the Christmas tree. End of the movie, penultimate scene... He's come to Hollywood where she's making a movie. He's going to stand around on the movie set out of the way. He leaves his pipe on the piano, puts the tree in the right position, goes off stage. She comes in, starts singing absentmindedly, picks up the pipe, starts playing. He starts whistling. She realizes it's him. She, she, the love of her life is back. It's a very powerful scene, and it's left us with that age-old question. In the movie they were making, when did they cut it? Did they actually, in that movie, and we'll never know because it wasn't a real movie, but in the, in the movie, did the uh, director let it go until she ran off to, uh, to him off stage, and that's the ending of the movie. But in any event, um, the, the, the pipe and the bell scene in uh, uh, Holiday Inn is, to me, one of those scenes I tell people when you watch this movie, make sure you don't miss it. Great scene. Uh, my number one. Yeah, I'm going to go back to the well, so don't 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 shoot me. Uh, it's in the Beside Adventure at the end when Reverend Scott, played by Gene Hackman, uh, makes a self-sacrifice, borderline possibly suicide, jumps on a steam pipe to save the others. To me, it's it's. For me, to this day, it's still the most fascinating sequence I've ever watched in a movie. Every revival I've ever done, you could hear a pin drop when people watch it. Just blown away by the scene. It's just an incredible way we shot uh, him hanging there, the overhead. It's just in- it is incredible piece of powerful, uh, emotional, raw filmmaking, and uh, I never get enough of it. Uh, I've always said, you know, I talk about this movie at nauseum, but The Poseidon Adventure is my all-time favorite movie. But this sequence is just incredibly powerful for me. So uh, that is and will always be probably, Ken, my number one. 
fantastic list. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and to the audience, thanks for listening, Ken. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Movie Maniacs. Download one of our archived episodes. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts by Federated Media.